because today is the start of the Advent season, we're going to be doing some liturgical reading. So there's going to be a slide behind me where it will have a line, and then I'll say all, and then stuff there. And when it says all, you read it with me. When it doesn't say all, I read it. So we're going to go through it. <laughs> See how it says presider? That's me. Okay. So let's get started. <clears throat> in this Advent season of waiting on the Lord, we trust in the Lord's goodness. We rely on his mercy. We find shelter in his steadfast love. In this Advent season of waiting on the Lord, we walk in the Lord's way. We follow his example of love. We keep our covenant promises. In this Advent season of waiting, Lord, forgive us our sins. Remember your love. Remember each one of us. Remember your people everywhere. In this Advent season of waiting, Lord, we wait for your salvation. We wait for your leading. And we wait for your coming. Amen. You may be seated. Our scripture reading today comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 80. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my God, will be called a prophet of the Most High, and you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. This is the word of God. When I was around seven years old, I went to a family picnic at my dad's company. My dad worked for a pretty big telecommunications company, and so his company had a huge campus near the Dallas-Fort Worth Airport with some huge outdoor space. And so on this bright, sunny summer day, we went to this picnic. And it was a huge party. Besides the food, there was a big stage with a band playing. And scattered around the field were these tents where you could play carnival games. You know, carnival games like the one where you try to throw a softball and knock over the milk bottles, or the one where you have these little rings and you try to somehow get the rings around the necks of Coke bottles that are lying there. You know, carnival games that my parents would never let me play whenever we went to Six Flags because they felt like those games were a waste of money, even though I really wanted to play them. But we were at this family picnic, and because it's a family picnic, it's a company family picnic, these carnival games were basically free, and so I got to play as many as I want. And so I remember, you know, this being seven and walking up and deciding after eating that I wanted to play this game where you had to throw these darts. And so the goal of this game was I was given three sharp darts, and behind in the tent were 
they uh, hung up these balloons on, on the wall behind the counter. And I, I was supposed to throw these darts and try to pop the balloons. And so I took the first dart, threw it, and missed everything. Took the second dart, tried to do the same thing, missed everything again. So I was down to my last dart. And I remember, you know, okay, it's, it's my last chance. I had to focus. So I, I, you know, I tried to channel, you know, try to be the dart, try to think how I would pop that balloon so I could win something. So I focused, I concentrated, I let it go, and I missed everything again. Because, you know, I was a seven-year-old, and I was a stereotypical nerd. I had absolutely no hand-eye coordination whatsoever. But it was a family picnic, right? So I got one ticket as a consolation prize, and these tickets could be redeemed for gifts. And so I got one ticket. So I turned, and I wanted to show my parents what I'd won when I realized that they had disappeared, that they were gone. And I started to panic. I started to walk all over the place looking for them. But my dad worked for a pretty big company, and so it was impossible to find them in the midst of all those crowds. I was really worried. I was lost. I felt lo lonely. I felt abandoned by my parents. And sometimes, as we go through life, this is how we feel with respect to God. Because we're struggling through different circumstances, we feel that God has left us alone, that God has abandoned us, that he's turned his back on us as we're dealing through different crises or different circumstances. Kind of like how Israel might have felt in the context of our passage today. Because Israel, in the, in the time in which Jesus was born, had not heard from God in quite a long time. It had been 400 years since the last prophet from God had spoken. 400 years since Malachi, way back when, around the time when Nehemiah was building the wall, around the time of the Persian Empire. And in those 400 years, Israel had struggled. They'd been conquered by empire after empire after empire. They'd gone under the rule of pagan ruler after pagan king after pagan king. Some of those pagan kings had even desecrated their temple, desecrated their faith, desecrated the God who they thought was, was with them. So you can see Israel during this time likely felt abandoned by God. The same might be true of Zechariah, the one who sang today's song. Because Zechariah, as we saw in verse 7, or as, we, as you can read in verse 7 of the first chapter, even though he was a priest, even though he was righteous, even though he was said to be blameless before God, had no children. He and his wife Elizabeth were barren. Zechariah also likely felt abandoned by God because God hadn't blessed him with any progeny. And so it's into this context that we see today's song, Zechariah's song. A lot of church traditions call this song Benedictus, which is Latin for blessed, the very first word in this song. Because even though the circumstances of this song might be dire in the sense of 
Israel not having heard from God in 400 years, in the sense of Zechariah himself having no children up until this point, Zechariah sings a song of praise. And he sings a song of praise because of what he has seen that God has done and will do in his life and in the nation and to his people. Now, the song has two parts in it. The first part is Zechariah's praise for Jesus, for God's provision of God's salvation in Jesus. The second part is Zechariah's praise for what he sees that God will do through his own son, John the Baptist. And throughout this song, in both halves, we see three themes repeated. The themes of God's redemption, God's remembrance, and God's renewal. And so, in the context of feeling abandoned by God, we see that Zechariah calls us to praise God because God redeems, God remembers, and God renews. So let's start at the beginning with God's redemption. We read in the first couple verses, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now I've highlighted the words visited and redeemed because these two words have a lot of significance in the context of the biblical narrative. These two words would draw people's minds to the Exodus narrative because the idea of God visiting and the idea of God redeeming uh, bring, bring to mind that time 1,400 years ago when God rescued his people from Egypt. Again, a time when the people of Israel also hadn't heard from God in 400 years. It had been 400 years since they'd been in Egypt, since Jacob had brought his children uh, down to Egypt because of the famine. And in those 400 years, the people of Israel had become enslaved. The Egyptians feared Israel because they the, the Jewish people because they multiplied, and so they enslaved them and oppressed them and afflicted them. And it's in that context where we read in Exodus chapter 3 that God says to Moses, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And later, when Moses reports to the people of Israel, we read that the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Now these two words, observed and visited, are actually the same word in Hebrew. They're the same idea of God visiting. They're the same idea that God knows their affliction, that God is there with them in their affliction, that God is present with them in their affliction, that God has not forsaken them. And of course, there's the idea of the theme of redemption in the Exodus where we see a very key verse of the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 6, where God tells Moses, reveals his character, and says, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Because you see, God redeems, and when God redeems, he redeems with power. When Zechariah sings about God visiting and God redeeming his people, he's recalling their mind to that time 1,400 years ago when God came and, and rescued them from Egypt. And he didn't just like sneak them out like a spy or something like that. He came and he showed his power. He performed the 10 plagues, you know, turning the Nile River into blood. 
the plague of frogs, the plague of hail, the plague of gnats, so on and so forth, darkness. He showed his power. He parted the seas so that his people could walk through in dry land. And so Zechariah is reminding everyone in his song that God redeems with power. And we see this when we go to the next part of the song when he says that God has raised up a horn of salvation. The horn, a symbol of power and strength when it came to the ancient, ancient Near Eastern peoples. The horn, the thing that animals use to defend themselves and to attack. This phrase, horn of salvation, appears only two other times in the Bible. In 2 Samuel 22 and in Psalm 18. And actually both of those passages are basically the same Psalm of David. We read in Psalm chapter 18, verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Zechariah is equating Jesus with God, the horn of our salvation, the, what, the God who delivers and the God who delivers with power. God is our fortress in whom we find safety when he delivers us. This is a picture of a fortress, an uh, ancient fortress called Masada near, around Israel. It was a fortress that Herod the Great built around the first century BC in the desert. He kind of saw it as a place that he could flee to if there was ever some kind of insurrection where he'd be protected. And this fortress basically was built on this plateau, on this mesa, that, where there was steep drop-offs on three sides. So there's only one way to ac access this fortress. And that way to access this fortress was actually not, not just only one way, but it was narrow. So you couldn't walk side by side with someone along this path. You could only walk single file. And so you can imagine if you're defending this fortress, if there's only one single path, pathway that people could access this fortress on, it'd be pretty hard to take over. And so later, in, after Jesus' time, around AD 72, there was a Jewish rebellion against the Romans. And they took refuge in this fortress. There were 960 Jewish men, women, and children who took refuge in this fortress trying to, to hope that the rebellion would continue to rise up and they could overthrow the Romans. And the Romans had to bring almost 9,000 soldiers in order to try to take over this fortress of 960 people. Around, and so they tried to do this in AD 72, and the Romans had to build a huge ramp. They had to move thousands of tons of rocks and dirt over the course of almost a whole year before it became inevitable that they were going to conquer uh, the Jewish rebellion that was here. 9,000 soldiers in order to take over this fortress of 960 people over the course of one year. But, and God is our fortress. A fortress even greater than Masada because Masada couldn't hold against those 9,000 soldiers. But God, when God delivers us, God delivers us with power. God is our fortress, the one in whom we find safety, the one in whom we find security. When we feel abandoned, God calls us to seek to shift our perspective, to realize that God has already redeemed us with power, and that in him we have safety. We're like... We're like Dorothy. Dorothy, if you remember in The Wizard of Oz, very early in the story, got a pair of red ruby slippers, right? 
And throughout the whole story, she's trying to get back to Kansas. And it's only until she goes through all her adventures as she's trying to figure out how to get back to where she was, as she feels lost in the land of Oz, wanting to get back to Kansas. It's only until the very end of the story when she realizes that all along, she's had the power to be able to go back to Kansas in those red ruby slippers that she's been wearing since the very beginning of the story. And the power that we have isn't in some inanimate set of slippers. The power we have is personal. The power we have is God himself, God himself redeeming us. The power that we have is God the Holy Spirit indwelling us, transforming us, rescuing us. We have to realize the power that we have in Christ Jesus, in the redemption that we have. This is why Paul, in Ephesians chapter 1, he prays that we might know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and all authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the one to come. When we feel abandoned and lost, we're called to praise God because God has redeemed us with power, because God is working in us with power. The same power that was able to raise Christ from the dead to rescue us is the same power that is at work in us right now. And when we realize, and realize that this power is at work within us, even when we feel lost, what can we do but give praise to God and give thanks to him for his redemption? God redeems us with power. But why does God redeem us in power? Is it because we deserve it? Is it because of something that we've done that causes him to say, oh, you are worthy of redemption, I will redeem you? No, what we find in Zechariah's song is God redeems us to show his mercy. God redeems us to show his faithfulness. God redeems us to show his loyalty to his own promises, to his own covenant, which is he has made with his people. We read in the song, in both halves of the song, the Jesus half and the John the Baptist half, we read that God redeemed us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. And we read later in the song that God saved us because of the tender mercy of our God. Now, it's somewhat appropriate, and I don't think an accident, that Zechariah's name is Zechariah. Some of you guys might know that my oldest son is named Zachary. And when, we first, when Emily and I first heard that we were having a son, we wrestled through different possibilities for names, for what we might name our, our firstborn son. And eventually we arrived at the name Zachary. We chose Zachary because Zachary means, or Zechariah means, God or Yahweh remembers. Yahweh remembers. We named him Zachary because we wanted him to know and to remember that God remembers even when he's struggling. Even when his own faith is tested and he's unsure if God is real, we wanted his very name to remind him that God remembers. And when God remembers, it's not a remembrance like 
us remembering some fact that we learned at some point in time. It's not like remembering what the quadratic formula is or, or a line from our favorite song or the plot from our favorite movie. When God remembers, he remembers us personally. And when God remembers, he acts. When God remembered the promises he made to Noah, when Noah was sitting in the ark on the flood, not knowing if this flood would ever end, if he was stuck on this boat for the rest of his life, when God remembered his promises then, God caused the flood to subside so that no one in the animals could come out and repopulate the earth. It's because God remembered Abraham and his promises to Abraham that God rescued Lot when he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. When God remembered Rachel, the wife of Jacob, she opened her, or he opened her womb and allowed her to have children. And God's remembrance is a theme in Exodus too. Because in Ex early on in Exodus chapter 2, we read that God remembered his people and heard their affliction. When we feel abandoned by God, we're called to remember that God remembers us, that God knows our affliction, that God knows our suffering. And God remembers with mercy. This word mercy is actually a pretty interesting word in the context of the whole Bible, because if we look at the Greek translation that the Jews were using, that the people of Jesus' time were using, of the Hebrew Bible, the Greek word mercy is the word that's almost always used to translate the Hebrew word hesed. And the Hebrew word hesed is what's commonly translated in our English Bibles as God's steadfast love. The reason why we see it translated as mercy and steadfast love, it's, it's actually a really difficult word to translate because it's a word that has a lot of association, a lot of richness to it. It's the word that describes God's loyalty, God's faithfulness, and God's truthfulness to the covenant that he has made with his people. It, it's God's steadfast love because God's love is steadfast to his people because he's promised them this love from the very beginning. It's God's mercy because it, the, people, the people of Israel didn't deserve what God was doing because God was basing his remembrance on his own character, not on what the people did. It's God's faithfulness. It's God's covenant loyalty to his people. And so we see this covenant loyalty throughout the Old Testament going into the New Testament. Abraham, you know, we always think of the, the folks in the Old Testament as these upstanding guys, right? But we look at Abraham, and God was faithful to Abraham, giving him the promised son, his promised son Isaac, this, even though Abraham and Sarah decided to try to do things their own way, and they decided to have Abraham have a child with Hagar, Sarah's maidservant. Despite this, God was still faithful to his covenant and gave Abraham and Sarah Isaac. God was faithful to his covenant with Israel. God rescued Israel from the Egyptians, right? God showed his presence to all of Israel on Mount Sinai, and Israel was terrified and said, of course we'll worship God as they saw the lightning and the sounds of trumpet coming from the mountain. And yet, not a few weeks later, Israel built the golden calf and worshipped an idol. And yet God was still 
loyal to his covenant, to his people, still was patient with their stiff necks because of his steadfast love to his people. Even Zechariah, the one who wrote our song today, if you go back and read earlier in Luke chapter 1, what did Zechariah do when the angel of God came and told him that he was going to have a son? He didn't believe. He had no faith in God, even though a supernatural being was coming and telling him that this was going to be true. And even despite Zechariah's lack of faith, God still worked through Zechariah. God still worked in Zechariah. God still showed his steadfast love in Zechariah because our God is a God who remembers, not because we deserve it, not because of the things that we have done. Our God is a God who remembers with mercy. And so there are times when we feel abandoned by God. There are times when we cry out like the psalmist and say, Awake, Lord. Why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? And when we feel abandoned by God, when we're going through difficulties, God calls us to cry out to him. God calls us to be honest with him with our emotions. God calls us to ask him, why are you turning your back on us? But in the same vein, and at the same time, God calls us to remember that he is a God who remembers. That he is a God who has not forgotten our misery and oppression. That he is a God who is present, who knows, who sees our affliction and our suffering. When we're struggling with our marriages, when we're struggling with our friendships, when we're struggling with finances, when we're struggling with any number of things that we know that come up in this broken world, God calls us to remember that God is a God who remembers, who knows the suffering that we go through. And he may not resolve it in the way that we want. He may not resolve it in the timing that we want. But he calls us to remember that God is a God who remembers. And when God remembers, he acts. And God remembers and acts not based on our righteousness, but God remembers with his mercy. And so God redeems with power, and God remembers with mercy. But God doesn't just stop there. God redeems and remembers us towards something. It's not just we're redeemed and that's it. There's a result to God's redemption. And what we see in the rest of Zechariah's song is that God renews us with his presence. We read later in the song, sorry, stop here. We read later in the song that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And in the same way, in the John the Baptist section, he says, the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. And the second passage is actually a direct allusion to the passage that uh, Aaron and Janet read earlier for us today at the very beginning in the Advent uh, section of our worship service. Because we read in Isaiah 9-2, I'll read it again, that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. This word deep darkness in Isaiah and this word shadow of death back in Zechariah's song are actually the same phrase because shadow of death in Hebrew was an idiom. 
It was an idiom to describe the deepest possible darkness that you could ever imagine. A darkness so dark, there was no ambient light whatsoever. A darkness so dark, you couldn't see your hand right in front of you. Picture for a moment this darkness, if you will. Picture, imagine yourself in the midst of this darkness where as you take your next step, you don't know whether it'll be a safe one or whether you're on the edge of a cliff or a platform like this, just, you know, inevitably about to fall because you just can't see. And in the midst of this darkness, a piercing, blinding ray of light appears. The contrast of the light and darkness is so great that you, you have to shield your eyes because you've been so used to darkness in your life that you can't even bear to look at the light. And this light is a symbol of God's presence. It's a symbol of God coming into the darkness. Christ incarnate coming to live amongst a broken people. This light is the light of God's presence shining light onto our path so that we can see where we're going. This light is God's presence transforming us so that as we go back to Zechariah's song, so that we can be guided into the way of peace. And peace sometimes is a little bit misunderstood for us too when we look at the word peace in the Bible. Because when we think of peace, we just think of peace as the lack of conflict, right? We think of peace as, you know, no wars around the world. Or sometimes we think of peace, you know, if I think about my family, there are times when my kids are just yelling all over the place or doing something, and I just shout out, can we just have some peace? We think of peace as the lack of racket. So we either think of peace as the lack of conflict or the lack of racket. But in the Bible, peace is a much richer concept, this idea of shalom. It's this idea of wholeness, of completeness, of utter communal harmony. It's this idea of harmony both within ourselves individually and harmony together as a corporate body. Tim Keller describes shalom this way. He writes, if I threw a thousand threads onto the table, they wouldn't be a fabric. They'd just be threads laying on top of each other. Threads become a fabric when each one has been woven over, under, around, and through every other one. The more interdependent they are, the more beautiful they are. The more interwoven they are, the stronger and warmer they are. God made the world with billions of entities, but he didn't make them to be an aggregation. Rather, he made them to be in a beautiful, harmonious, knitted, webbed, interdependent relationship with each other. God renews us with his presence. And what this renewal looks like is like this fabric behind me where we, where we serve one another and we serve God. We become interdependent on one another where peace doesn't just look like the absence of conflict, but peace looks like a group of people loving and serving one another selflessly for the glory of God. And we see this picture in Revelation, the very last chapter of the Bible. In Revelation chapter 22, where we read as John sees a vision of eternity, that no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, 
but the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. We see here again this imagery of God's presence as the light that transforms us, God's presence as the light that renews us. But we also see here this idea that we will be worshiping him forever. Now, sometimes I know that when we think of this idea of heaven, we think that we're, we're going to be sitting on clouds in eternity, you know, that, that trope where you, we're just going to be strumming uh, harps or whatever for the rest of our lives. But heaven, the idea of eternity, the idea of what we're being redeemed for is much more rich than that. It's this idea of perfect shalom. It's this idea of perfect worship of him. And actually, this word worship in Greek is the exact same word back in Luke chapter 1 when, uh, when, Luke, when, when Zechariah's song said that we might serve him without fear. It's a different word from worship than the typical worship. It's this idea of service. It's this idea that in eternity, we're not just going to be sitting on, cl- on, on clouds strumming harps. We're going to be serving one another. But this service is not going to be a service of fear. It's not going to be like when we serve our parents and are worried about their discipline, and so we're serving out of fear of discipline. Or it's not like a ser- the service that we have at work when we, when we wor- do our work because sometimes because we're afraid of the consequences of not doing our work, whether it be a pay cut or being laid off. It's not even service sometimes that we think of when we think of serving God, worried that if we don't serve God, we're going to let either other people down or let God down. The vision of eternity is a type of service that is without fear because we have been made holy and righteous by the presence of God at work in our lives. It's a vision of us serving one another in complete interdependence for the glory of God. And so what we have in our passage today is a call to remember that God redeems us with power, that God remembers us with mercy, and that God renews us with his presence. It's a call to praise God that when we face circumstances that cause us to think that God has turned his back on us, when we face difficult circumstances that cause us to wonder why it seems like God is not at work in our lives, to remember that God is faithful, that God has already redeemed us and has already given us the power, his power at work in us, to remember that God remembers us and that God remembers us with his steadfast love, with his covenant loyalty, to remember that God's presence is in our midst. God's presence is working in us to renew us so that even though we're not in that perfect shalom, he is working in us to to experience a foretaste, a snippet of what that shalom could look like in our community as Christians here in this world, broken world today. Because we respond with lament sometimes. We can lament. But as Christians, our lament is also a call to recognize that God is faithful, God is loyal to his promises, and God is truthful and redeems us in the end. And so we praise him. Let us pray. Father God, we praise you and we thank you because you are a good God. We praise you because even though we are broken, even though we are in this broken world, even though there is so much going on around us that doesn't make sense and there's so much pain and hurt and suffering, we know that you are patient because you long 
for your people to come to you. And so, Lord, help us to transform our, our perspectives into one of praise. Help us to transform our viewpoints so that we can turn towards you and exalt you and praise you in the midst of our, our, our cry, in the midst of our lament, that you are the God who redeems, you are the God who remembers, and you are the God who removes. In your precious name's name we pray.